You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, a Namshak publishing production featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around the concept of compassion. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode. But here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Soma was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as a personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Somo for a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth, she's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this uh, profound tradition is all about. The Buddha, there are, of course, lots of stories about him. So I'm going to make this very brief. He was born a prince in India. He went on this journey against his father's wishes. When he was born, there were all kinds of amazing signs. And the royal couple was told he would either be a great king who was ruler of all the known world, or he would be the creator of a new religion. Of course, his father wanted him to go into the family business. So he did everything in his power to try and keep uh, the young Prince Siddhartha interested in momentary pleasures of everyday life. He also tried to keep all suffering from the view of this young prince. And as the young prince got older, he began to want to go outside of the palace. Uh, This sounds like any young person wanting to explore beyond the boundaries set by their parents. He finally did go out went out on several occasions, and on each occasion he saw human suffering. Somebody very old and bent down with age and in pain and so on, truly struck by it because he had been spared it. So actually he was more shocked by it than if he had grown up with it all along. Um, So somebody should have advised the king a little differently. Anyway, so he came back and was deep in contemplation in his room. How could he stop this suffering? because everyone gets old. Either that or they die young. Those are the two options. Everyone gets sick, and of course he went out and came upon a sick person. 
So he realized after a couple of these forays that everyone who is born gets sick, gets old, dies. There's lots of suffering along the way. And because this was such a shock to him, having already almost grown up before really discovering this, he took it all the more to heart. And because he was such an amazing being, he decided to leave behind the palace and so on. He also came upon, in one of his forays, a mendicant, uh, somebody traveling begging who was a pursuer of the mystical and the spiritual. And he realized, this is the only way. I must find out how reality really works. What is the truth? He just knew that if he found out how reality really was, what the truth really was, and the nature of our own minds and so on, that he would eventually come upon the secret to true, lasting happiness. So he did leave behind a wife and a newborn child and pursued this path and studied under one master after another, always coming closer and closer to the truth, but there was still a bit of a veil. And it was finally when he sat under the Bodhi tree, he was able to, in a sense, not only clear away his own obscured view and sort of clean his own windshield, but really take away the windshield altogether. And he was experiencing truth absolutely directly. So in that moment of awakening, and Buddha means awakened one, he realized the mistake that we all tend to make. Once we completely cleared away all of the karmic traces that are on our windshield and the habits of mind that sort of color it and shape it and bend reality into whatever it is that we see, once we can clear all of that away and directly perceive reality with no delusion and none of these emotions coloring our perception, then we'll see what will be returned once again. And not just seeing, but feeling through the heart that we are not separate from all of these other beings. This is the way that we can come home once again. In many schools of the West, the whole crossing has been completely distorted and Buddhism really helps to clean this up. The cross theology is so presented as saying, we are the causes of suffering. And what the Buddha is reminding us is, uh, no, every being suffers. You notice how that corrects the distortion of the preoccupation with the cross in the Western tradition, because suffering is part of, not just the human experience, is part of the historical experience of every being that passes through. I don't know if I like to say it, but I say this because it has to be said. Jesus had one really bad day, and they build a religion on it. You know, get over it. Jesus was teaching for, for years before they hung him on the cross, and they hung him on the cross because he was teaching something powerful, like be compassionate, which is good Buddhist teaching too. One other indication about this great emptiness, which is that if this is the place at the bottom of the ocean where you know everything comes together, the source of all appearance, then it's one great vast awareness. Therefore, any piece of any appearance that is suffering is felt by this whole awareness that underlies everything. So this is seen as ultimate compassion. It doesn't get any more direct than that. It's fully felt every tiny bit of suffering of every ant, anything. Mm -hmm. And could you also include every tiny bit of joy? Absolutely. So that compassion is our participation both in the suffering of all beings and of ourselves, but also in the joy of all beings. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, when we're in difficult situations, prison mm -hmm. or the analogous kinds of prisons we find ourselves in, 
is also very powerful, both to ride the interconnectivity, the compassionate consciousness of shared suffering, but also to ride the compassionate consciousness of shared joy. This talk of compassion is interesting because one of the questions that's come up in our conversations is this enlightenment goal of Buddhism and the compassion goal of Judaism and Christianity and how alike are they really. The more I explore it, I think they're really the same thing because compassion is about enlightenment. It's just what you're saying. It's an awareness of our profound interdependence and it carries us beyond obviously a, a rugged individual ego or soul or anything else. And yet it's more than just the awareness, it's the acting out. See, the and the feeling of it, the felt sense of the connection. In Buddhism, I have to say, when you say the emphasis is of enlightenment, actually it's enlightenment and compassion together. Uh -huh. And it's depicted as, you know, the male and female in union. Uh -huh. And one is enlightenment and one is compassion. It's a marriage. As, exactly. Uh -huh. And it takes both of them because they feel that if there's too much insight or wisdom mm. without the compassion, uh -huh. then you have things like, you know, the atom bomb, which is very clever, mm. but not very compassionate. <laughs> On the other side, if you have all compassion, but no <clears throat> wisdom to mm. guide it in its effectiveness, it's actually mm. powerless, and it can just fall mm. into, you know, sentimentality or something, or just ineffectuality. Or the know? sentimentalizing of compassion, which is another thing, it's really sentimentality. Yes. And not compassion. That's right. Compassion has a hard edge to it. Like Eckhart says, compassion means justice. Well, sentimentality is still about yourself. Not You're getting off on something. On your feelings. That's right. Your own Alone. feelings. Your, and, in fact, and it's emotions. not about the other person. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And it's pseudo. It's called the near enemy of compassion uh -huh. in Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, yeah. Because it can be It's, it's, it's pseudo. It's ersatz. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But it can fill your soul with self-righteousness and aren't I good and aren't I more compassionate than this person and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's very deceptive. Well, then it's still about ego, isn't it? Exactly. There's a great line, a medieval line called um, corruptio optimi es pestima. The corruption of the best is the worst. So to take compassion and corrupt it mm -hmm. is a very dangerous thing. And that's why compassion has to be critiqued. And then if we're to apply the compassion skillfully, we'd better have some wisdom yes. in there. It's not going to uh -huh. be effectual. Okay, so now I'm getting closer to your understanding of enlightenment. I'm glad we talked about this. So for you, enlightenment is wisdom applied to compassion. Well, it's wisdom and compassion uh -huh. joined. Joined. Well, and from your <clears throat> tradition as well as mine, if we look at it from the point of view of original blessing mm -hmm. or original purity as it's spoken of mm -hmm. in Tibetan Buddhism, if that's what we all are in our essence mm -hmm. and it's just covered over, then it makes our job much easier to be able mm -hmm. to look at each sentient being. Yes, you know, as a Buddha or a Christ in, in trouble. And as Jesus saying, love your enemies. And really, that's what Gandhi but picked up on. this is how. And this is how, right, right. And Gandhi picked up on that. And this mm -hmm. is how you do it. Yeah. You know, you go to jail if you have to. And you don't return violence for violence. You get into your capacity for nonviolence, mm -hmm. and that spreads. Yeah. It can spread just as much as violence can spread. It's like a, a gene or a virus. I think <laughs> and, and that's really what infectious. happened yeah. in King's movement. It spread, and, and it worked. Mm -hmm. But it was harrowing. I mean, I, I've talked to people who were there. James Farmer, who was one of the leaders of one of the marches he was in, who was a great big guy, that he literally ran and hid in a drugstore. And afterwards, when they all gathered and everyone was very despondent, James Farmer stands up and tells the truth of what he did. He said, I was so scared I went and I hid. Mm -hmm. And instead of berating him or booing him or firing him as their leader, they stood up and 
and clapped and held him because the common humanity of fear, everyone recognized, you know, that none of us is a, is a Superman mm -hmm. or a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what about the role of blame? For example, the Tibetan at this time in history, jailed by the Chinese mm -hmm. who are invading their country. Your guru in jail, is he also putting some blame or responsibility on part of the Chinese for putting him in there, for torturing his family, et cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Where does that come in as part of that? Well, of course, he had to address that. Looking at it through his lens, he could see that he was, how shall I say, paying off karma, uh -huh. and they were accruing karma. <laughs> karma would be negative or positive? Or well, no? you can acquire what they call merit uh -huh. know, if you do something. Or demerit. Uh, positive, you know, then it's merit. Uh -huh. and, you know, usually when you say karma, you're speaking of the negative kind. Yeah, I see. He's paying off the negative karma from whatever lifetime, and meanwhile, they're accruing some uh -huh. very heavy karma. He's watching them in the act of accruing yeah. this karma. And they're sentient beings who are trying to figure it out in life and are very confused and stumbling around and have not had real guidance. They became a source of compassion for it. And mm -hmm. that had to be real. It wouldn't work if it weren't yeah. real because he was right in it. When the Dalai Lama asked him, were you ever afraid? He said, yes, I was. I was afraid I was going to lose my compassion. That's what he was afraid of. Mm -hmm. And he said the way he was able to keep it was he looked in the face of his torturer and saw that his torturer was not happy even while he was accruing mm. this karma and doing this. To me, that's identical to King talking about facing his jailers and the racists mm -hmm. who were trying to kill him and, and others when he was trying to bring the rights of his people, that he had to see them not as enemy, but as potentially healed Mm -hmm. and able to be healed. And again, that's compassionate work, whether mm -hmm. it's east or west. There are these two kinds of compassion. One is this ultimate compassion that's completely out of the fray, you know, in this very ultimate stillness kind of way. But then there's compassion that happens within the drama. The concrete, That, you, you that you're speaking uh -huh. of. Yeah, well, Historical. within the appearances, the world of appearances, you know, there's uh -huh. sort of the emptiness and then it comes into appearances and it just keeps doing that. They speak of it almost like frames of a movie where it keeps going back into the emptiness and flashing mm. forth mm. just the way the movie does. And of course, we put together the appearances and mm. make a whole story. We never see the blank part in between. When I look at goals in terms of my lineage, two words rise to the surface. One is compassion and one is generosity. Once we recognize how truly interdependent we are, compassion just happens, it flows, it's absolutely natural. And Eckhart put it this way, he said, what happens to another, whether it be a joy or a sorrow, happens to me. That's compassion. It is our common joy and our common sorrow. And it's also an effort to relieve the sorrow to the extent that we can, to relieve suffering to the extent that we can. I started to look more deeply into Eckhart, and then I was in a serious car accident. To make a long story short, I had an operation, and Eckhart came to me during the operation. And we went walking together on the beach, nothing said, complete silence. And it was the most transcendent dream of my life. He really entered my, my world in a, in a fuller way there, and then I really went after him, and I found there, as I say, a real brother. And he talks about the ocean simile time and again, when he's talking about compassion. And he says compassion is an ocean and that we're born in compassion. He says the first outburst of everything God does is compassion. And he has a beautiful sermon, which I call God, compassion as an ocean. And it is our origin and it is our destiny. 
there too, I think the metaphor that you and your tradition comes up with very much plays with this language from Eckhart and experientially so. Once we recognize how truly interdependent we are, compassion just happens, it flows, it's absolutely natural. And Eckhart put it this way, he said, what happens to another, whether it be a joy or a sorrow, happens to me. That's compassion. It is our common joy and our common sorrow. And it's also an effort to relieve the sorrow to the extent that we can, to relieve suffering to the extent that we can. And that, of course, is the Jewish tradition from Isaiah of what we call the works of mercy. After all, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, as remembered by the Luke tradition, be you compassionate as your creator in heaven is compassionate. That's calling us to our divinity. In the Jewish tradition, God is the compassionate one. So for Jesus to say, hey, we've got this in us, is an amazing challenge. It's a challenge that 2,000 years after his teaching has only sporadically been fulfilled. About Martin Luther King Jr. or his influence on Gandhi, the people we call saints and heroes are people, I think, who carry the work of compassion into the world. So I think there's a, a wonderful coming together then of what the East would call non-action and action, and what the West, I think, would call being and action. So Meister Eckhart says we should worry less about what we do and more about who we are. Because if our being is just, we will be just. If our being is joyful, we will be joyful. So this reintegration of being and action and doing, if you will, is part of the accomplishment of a mystical lineage and of our own practice. Now, for me, generosity has become a very important word lately. It's an amazing word in English when you look it up etymologically. The word is amazing. From this word, we get genesis, generativity, Generosity includes creativity. You can't be generous without being creative. Indeed, creativity is a giving away of our gifts. But it's more than that. Also in the word is the word genus and lineage and kinship, from which we get the word kind. Our species is a kind, and so our families are a kind and kinship. Kindness is related to the word kin. When I explore this word generosity, it just gets me very excited because it has to do with Cosmology, our genesis, where do we come from, our beginnings. And again, we have to go beyond the lineages that are human, even beyond the thing called Buddhist lineage, beyond the thing called Christian or Jewish lineage, to all the other beings that have brought us here. And now we can name them, you know, the galaxies and the supernovas and the fireball and the atoms. This is our lineage. Think about their generosity. The sun the entire Earth system runs on one billionth of the energy that the sun gives out every day. <laughs> That's pretty darn generous. There's at least one generous being there, and it's the sun, folks. When I read Buddhist literature, it's interesting how smoothly generosity and compassion glide together in the writings. I think that's as it should be. When you come down to this bottom question, who are human beings? I think all the great teachers, the Buddhas and the Lao Tzus and the Isaiahs and the Jesus and the Dorothy Days and all have been trying to remind us that we are generous in our roots. The ocean is a very generous source from which we come and we are capable of compassion. As a species, we need to continually not just be reminded of this, but be led to this. The world in which we find ourselves uh, the human-made world 
is not conducive to bringing the best out of us. It's conducive to the reptilian brain, not to the mammal brain. This is what the next level of evolution of our species is all about. Either we learn what our teachers East and West have been telling us, that we're compassionate beings and we're generous beings. Either we learn this and practice it, or we're, we're probably finished as an experiment. And of course, a very popular Buddha quality is compassion. This is a compassion practice, and something that I still do a lot myself. Please get in a reasonably comfortable position with your back reasonably straight. And first, let me just give you an overview of this very simple practice. You're going to do two things. With the in-breath, you're going to do one thing. With the out-breath, you're going to do another. If you imagine somebody, and we'll start with somebody you already naturally feel sympathetic to, uh, if you imagine them in front of you, and you imagine them suffering, what is the thing you naturally want to do? You want to take that suffering away from them. And you want to replace it with joy and happiness. Preferably not just temporary joy and happiness, but permanent. What you're going to do is you're going to breathe that suffering into your heart. This is a very courageous thing to do. Courage coming from the word heart means the same reference. So you breathe in a dark cloud of suffering. So you see this dark cloud of suffering as you breathe it into you. And of course you want them to be happy, so you breathe out this sparkling, shiny, bright cloud of your wishes for them. And you see that cloud then enveloping that person. And now they're relieved of their loneliness, or their hunger, or maybe it's somebody who's physically sick and in terrible pain. So we imagine now their face is lifting because the pain has been lifted away. Now they're feeling well and healthy. Whatever the suffering is, then you imagine now they're relieved of it and feeling the opposite. But beyond that, as you keep breathing, you don't want them to be happy just for the moment. You want them to be happy permanently. So you imagine this permanent happiness that the Buddha had discovered, that they come home once again to the ocean of oneness and complete enlightenment. So let's start now. If you have enjoyed the conversation, if you have enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshak, please visit namshak.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy of Audiowell Productions on behalf of Namshak Publishing. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Anonymous 4 for Harmonia Mundi. For full-length recordings by Nawang Xiong, please visit SoundsTrue.com. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode.